Okay, welcome to Average Joe's Podcast. This is a special edition where we talk about rules and proposals that are going into our preseason vote. It'll happen in a couple days. Um, I'm joined with Hunter Ford, BCU, also Director of Nationals for this year. Welcome. Glad to be here, Zygnus. So the first thing we're going to be talking about today is the minimum games required for Nationals participation. All right, so I propose that a minimum of three games to be eligible to participate at Nationals um, going in. And this was a very strict number, and I went into a nice little statistical rant about this. Three is a solid number that doesn't affect our opposite teams in the West, uh, Midwest area, basically Wisconsin, Platteville, Nebraska. They're, because of the geography of our United States of America, it's they're never going to be a very populous region at all. They can't have a lot of schools playing each other, just like Michigan or the East Coast or Ohio. Those regions are much more intensely populated. Cool. Yeah, and I, you know, definitely share sentiment with your proposal as far as you know having a three-game schedule. And I think one of the biggest points you talked about was um, having those three games allows a lot more. I guess certainty that we are setting up the right matches uh, for nationals just, you know, since I guess that's going to be my role for up this upcoming year, it's something to think about. And, you know, if you have a team who's inducting match is at nationals, then it's kind of hard to say where they should be ranked and what teams that they should be playing. And um, for that matter, that is definitely something that, you know, I think is a good that this rule proposal helps fixes. Um, and then another thing, you know, like you talked about beforehand, um, you know, as far as the geography where we're not really seeing that as much of a hindrance anymore, for the most part, my biggest thing is to, you know, three is a solid number and that that's usually about the number of games that most teams play at any given event anyways. Um, that's, but that's only for the West Coast or the East Coast. Yeah. When it gets out there, you have two people come to an event out of three. So that's why it's... A uh, really weird balance between having one event, maybe one and a half events, for uh, like a Western, you know, Great Plains team. It's easy enough for everybody else, but that's why it's weird. Well, that's what I was about to get into. Was <laughs> what I was going to say is it like also forces like multiple participation in the case of those teams that are a little bit more isolated, such as um, Northwestern State and University of Nebraska Lincoln simply because, you know, we want to try to encourage as much participation as we can over the course of an entire season. And, you know, it limits you from just saying, you know, if we just say like one tournament and we can kind of throw it out there as, you know, when Kentucky and Western Kentucky play their, you know, battle for the bluegrass one time, yeah. you know, that, you know, that eliminates that from just being the default. And, you know, again, ties back to kind of, Speaking more to the statistics thing, you know, more sample, a bigger sample gives us a better idea of where a team falls in line. And so the yeah. three games, you know, is fair in that regard. And even if you had, like, we've had a couple of teams that have conducted matches at nationals, and it's been tough. And as an organization, we've always been statistic driven and data driven. And if we have to, you know, populate a schedule based on what we or, you know, the leadership of the NCGA think of how a team is, that's bad. We should just be having data-driven stuff. So even that three little matches, it's not going to be great. 
but it's going to be some indication that we can base off of for a fair schedule for everybody. Yeah. It's better for everybody. Agreed. I really don't think this has a major downside. I think as an organization, we've grown a lot. And that's why it's it's still it's still low at three games. I don't think we should ever raise it. I think it's just good enough for a couple of years. Then we'll yeah. visit like everything else. Yeah. Um, the only thing that you know I could possibly throw out as far as like downside is, you know, we're still not a, or at least most of the sports clubs around the NCDA are not, you know, super highly recognized or they don't always receive the best funding you know, if any, in certain situations. So, you know, there are still some financial limitations that, you know, we could run into or specific teams can run into, you know, especially the ones that aren't, you know, don't have like six schools within a three-hour drive to them. But yeah. And it's tough because, like, you look at the map, and we've, we've done a map of all the D1 and a couple D2 schools, and once you get out west, it, it falls apart. There's no, there's no population there to to really we, we've there's a reason we've grown east and uh from the midwest so i guess all right on to our next little little thing as we're talking about national scheduling um i propose that we remove something from the constitution that really shouldn't be in there logistically as in the main reason is it takes a lot of people voting the correct way in order to change something and that could be dangerous when we need to put on a national event so as it stands right now it's constitutionally defined that you have to play three matches at nationals and my nationals uh, proposal was related to take that out of the constitution and just make it a policy that the executive board can change if it needs to but uh you know as always, as tradition, we'll always try to do everybody gets four matches over the weekend. So we want to be a little more flexible. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think you brought up a really big point in terms of player safety. Uh, you look at a school like, you know, just, you know, tipping tip the hat, Grand Valley State, which traditionally, you know, we'll make it to the championship or at least the final four at a minimum. And you're talking three games on Saturday. And then I think it ended up being what, five games or four games on Sunday for them. Yeah. That's uh, five games to go into the championship. So, so then, yeah. So then five game. then that after they, so Grand Valley state has to play three games on Saturday and then on top of that, they got to play five games on Sunday, you know, to get to the championship and win. And eight games over a, you know, arguably less than 48-hour period is um, a lot of strain, especially for a throwing sport like ours. Uh, you know, that's kind of that's kind of a really big issue that will need to be addressed at some point and, you know, can be addressed in this, you know, where when we have it as a policy, like you said, we can make it a lot more flexible in how we want to adapt national scheduling versus a constitutional yeah. uh, piece. In, in terms of as a constitutional defined thing, it's just way too stringent. You know, the only counterpoints that I see is, you know, a lot of the newer or maybe not as established programs do like the fact that they can have that guaranteed 
you know, set in stone policy, and I shouldn't say policy, but constitutional peace, you know, for nationals, because they might know that they're not going to be playing more than X number of games in a weekend, and they want to keep it where it is, you know, just to kind of make the trip worth it in a sense. But, you know, like we discussed, if it's a policy, then it's, you know, even more flexible where we could say if we want to, we can have more games, you know, for certain situations or less games for other situations. So um, I think the tradition is going to prevent, you know, the executive board or anybody else from really abusing teams. Like if we can give you four games over the weekend, that's good. We'll probably give you that. If uh, if we get. 32 teams to come to nationals and play each other, then three games in that situation is pretty good. But, you know, tradition's going to dictate that we're going to give you as many games as possible that is safe and fun and, you know, good for championship and competition. So, yeah, that helped. We, we, we were in it. We were an organization for at least six years based on just tradition alone. We've grown a lot. That's yeah. Cool. Really, the biggest thing, you know, I say as far as this is the only, there's not really a lot of downsides other than, like I said, instead of, you know, having something that's concrete or set in stone, we have something that's more flexible. But, you know, who really, nobody generally argues against having flexibility when it comes to, um, you know, the way things are done, at least not in this day and age. Um, and especially not for, you know, some of the reasons that we brought up beforehand as far as scheduling goes as far as, you know, making sure injury prevention doesn't happen. And then also, you know, making sure that every team that attends is satisfied with, you know, the way things are handled and run. Definitely. And we're always looking out for that commentary. So if you have anything, definitely point it out. So our next topic is moving into our rule portion, rule proposals that we we did. And this one is from... It's Ben Tubergen. Tubergen. So his rule proposal is shot clock officials are responsible for d- distinguishing a legitimate throw. Yeah, I think that uh, looking, looking at it from both sides, I definitely see pros and cons. Um, as far as going over the pros of it, I like the idea that um, there's not that type of overlap issue that we discussed beforehand where a team feels like they make a throw and said shot clock for team believes that it's a legitimate throw, but then the head referee, you know, comes in with only two seconds left and says 13-14 or, you know, 2-1. And they're flailing their arm trying to get people to throw. Yeah, and that's that's something that we definitely want to avoid because it just makes – you know, it makes a sloppier product in the end and, you know, can create some discrepancies and, you know, that sort of deal. Um, and then the other pro, you know, is just having, is just having a definitive, definitive straight up call. Um, there's not really a lot of sports where, you know, referees are overruling each other on most things like the, head referee in football is not going to overrule a side judge on a call that's, you know, on like a touchdown at the back of the, or on the side of the end zone or anything like that, because it's not their call to make. And in this case, you know, it's the same thing where it's, you know, the assistant shot clock's call to make. And 
I know I'm rant, ranting a little bit here, but you know, that's, that's the, the their purpose. The purpose of the assist, you know, assistant referee slash shot clock is to make that distinction. And so, you know, allowing them to have that right and ability to make that distinction should be allowed. You know, now if the head referee wants to say after they make a call, like, hey, make sure that it's closer or like, you know, this is what this is what we're seeing, then that's another thing. And we move yeah. on to the next call. But you think that's we can't we should do is after the fact and like, okay, they got one. They got one. It's better to keep the game rolling than stop it and, you know, have to clarify a call because there was a weird mechanic that we're doing right now. I think, you know, one, the one thing go. And then as, as, as people grow into the position of the shot clock official, they'll be better trained at doing it. So like, I'm, I'm a great shot clock official because I know, what a legitimate throw is, but they might need me as a head ref or assistant ref instead to, you know, be control the court a little bit better. That's all. This that's why I think this rule is good to pass is because it puts the pressure on the guy, but it's also the whole officiating team that makes it better. You know, it's the head ref going over and saying, okay, get a little bit closer next time. That's that's what I do right now. If it's in the rule book, people start following it a little bit better. Mm-hmm. As a mechanic, yeah. Now going over to kind of the cons, or really the biggest con that I can think of is something that I brought up to you beforehand. Was instead of having um, you know one kind of head figurehead who is the ultimate decider in this case, you now in a sense have two heads because you have one side shot clock and then you have another side shot clock and so you can get there is that issue of now having two judgments or two different judgments on the same type of mechanic versus one judgment but I mean that's the that's the key word right there is judgment call and you know there's going to be there's going to be some not so great calls and there's going to be great calls that teams are going to be mad about even though it is the right call so I don't necessarily have I don't necessarily have a problem with that if you know shot clock if there are two different shot clocks and they might not always have consist they might not always have the same consistency between each other but if they're making their call consistently the same then it's then it works over the course of a game because you switch shot clocks anyways so that's that's does, the biggest thing it does um it's it's about learning and putting good people into the officiating role itself. And, you know, as as an organization, we need a four-man squad to do it, anything effectively. A three-man squad tends to really fall apart after an intense match. You know, if it's not a 3-0 game, then you got to have a four-man squad. And you got to have good officials. That's why we've always stressed that put good, you know, junior level people, the people that have been around the game for at least two years in a shot clock position, because that actually matters more than the assistant ref. The assistant ref is just another side of, on the other side of the court watching everything. So that's a lot of this helps with, you know, policy in, in addition to, to mechanics and rules. So responsibility by pay grade, right? Yeah. Responsibility by pay grade. Exactly. Good, good. Good one. Yeah. 
So to go over this, you know, the straight line detail of uh, Tubergen's proposal, it's shot clock officials are responsible for distinguishing a legitimate throw versus a non-legitimate throw. The idea is taking away any type of override power from a head official and just leaving the responsibility to the shot clock official to make uh, said call. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's there's really no no instance that if the call was wrong by the shot clock official, he has to live with that 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 call because, you know, we have bad calls all the time and, you know, we have to live with them for some cases. So there's definitely going to be a head ref or an A ref come over and say, hey, that wasn't, you know, a good call. Keep it together. And then they learn. They learn about it. And it's a learning process. So and it's only one it's only one ball God, because there's sometimes they take one ball too much but it's all right i get it for sure all right to continue on our shot clock thing um we also have another proposal that uh from lucas Linus from msu um, and he wants the shot clock to only count up from for example and for 15 or 1 to 10. Now, there's a some weird history behind this. This this rule is basically when we were redoing the rule book around 2012 or something like that. You can probably look back and see where this was added. I added in a countdown because some teams did it. And it wasn't just the East Coast teams that did it. It was just sometimes people read the rule book and assumed oh, it's a shot clock, we'll count it down like the NBA does or something like that. So it goes from technically, you don't say 15, you say 14, then 14 to zero. You don't say 15 because 15 is in effect zero itself. So there's also some contradictions, but it's a that's a weird thing behind the rule book because I just put it in just to have people option because people were already doing it. Um, you does the countdown, right, Hunter? What's that? They do count down on the shot clock. Right? Yeah, uh, most of the East Coast teams do. Maryland is the only one that I can think of off the top of my head that counts up. Um, they didn't yeah, used I... to. They, when I when the first matches when we played with them, I, mean, I, I didn't play with them, but they didn't used to, so it's weird. Yeah, the only, uh, to be honest... I remember I was talking with some teammates about this on why we would think that any team would want to count up instead of counting down. The only thing that I could think of is like from a timing standpoint, it takes longer to say multiple syllables than, you know, just one syllable when you get like three, two, one versus 12, 13, 14, you know, in that sense. And like maybe you get like that tenth of a second to think about it more, but because I guess here's here's my biggest issues with um, with this. Uh, first of all, you know the saying goes, if it's not if it's not broke, don't fix it. And I don't really think that this is a broken policy or broken rule, I should say. Um, and I know I'm coming in with a little bit of bias because I'm one of the, you know I'm a member of a team that we like to count down, but I haven't personally witnessed or been a part of any games where we got into an argument because one side decides to count up and one side decides to count down. Like maybe at one point in time, the assistant or the shot clock official like 
accidentally counts up for a team or accidentally counts down for a team that, you know, likes it the other way. That's usually like once a match and like they, you know, as they're doing it, they realize what, you know, that it's supposed to be the other way around. So like that's, you know, there's that. Um, there's been many people, uh, many people in DePaul that actually that officiated and said, oh, well, I, we can see that if we had one team on the count up and the one team on the countdown, it's actually good because you can tell which shot clock is who based on when yeah. it starts. Um, and, you know, there's, there's many different ways. I don't think it should be, you know, I don't necessarily think that it should only count up or only count down. Yeah. I, I think it, any timing variations are just, you know, people not counting the correctly, correct time. That's why I stick people with timers in their hands, just to get their good timing down. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think the reason that uh, I'll say the reason that I feel like Lucas um, did want to have the proposal is his concern is what you said earlier, which is team teams who count down someone saying 15 at the start instead of starting at 14 and going all the way to zero, because, you know, there might be an issue of, you know, and that, that's right. That's the reason why that is getting put in the rule book. Yeah. And you count down, there'll be a, an actual mechanic definition saying when you, because people haven't been doing doing it right. And um, me and Vansois learned this doing the shot clock counter for a little app that we were doing. And we're like, well, we have to start from, you know, the people say 14, 13. They have to start saying 14 instead of saying 15. Yeah. In their head. You, they don't say it, but, you know, in their head, they got to count from 14. Yeah. One second. It was a weird, you know, it's counting from zero versus counting from one. It's a weird programmer thing. Yeah. But see, my thing is with that, like we say, you know, he says that, but you get teams like Towson and, you know, I love those guys, but I always hated them for like trying to convince people of this. They always tried to say two balls over because you know of whatever reason and so you get teams that also overcompensate when they count down from 15 sometimes because you know maybe they do mentally say 15 and then want to you know stop at one instead we'll change the procedure yeah which but i mean again like i said this isn't a system that's this isn't a system that i feel like is truly broken but honestly my you know my point that I had in my head is similar to what you were saying about DePaul and that if there are two shot clocks that go in different directions, then it, there is the benefit of knowing like, Oh, our shot clock counts down. Yeah. The other person's counting up. We know that's, it's not our turn to throw or like we don't have to worry about throwing soon. The other thing that, you know, honestly, to be fair that I would say is even more of a benefit of counting down is you get to a situation where, you know, you get five people, you have five people or less on your team Traditionally, you're hearing the shot clock go all the way up to 15, but let's say you get that one person knocked out, your team doesn't, isn't really, a, the rest of your team isn't aware, then the shot, you know, the referee gets to 10, you're used to it going all the way to 15, and it's like, oh, well, now our balls are over. Whereas, you know, if a team counts down, it's always over at zero, you know, not always done at 15 or 10. Yeah, right. You know what I'm saying? That's just, um, that's why we just want people to vote 
logically and think about it. Think about the implications of what's going to happen. Like, like I said, I want to avoid bias. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with having consistency, which I do appreciate um, Lucas for uh, wanting to bring wanting to bring some level of consistency because consistency is always, you know, a lot more professional and a lot uh, easier to handle in some situations. It's just that in this specific instance, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a big issue that really is necessary of um, fixing since it's, yeah, it is what it is. All right. So um, moving on. Uh, to another rule proposal. This one was uh, written from Brandon Mizell and also, I believe, Lucas Linus. Um, and what you can dub as the blood rule. And it's a little bit, it's a little bit lengthy in time or in description. But here's the gist of it: If a player gets blood on their clothes or they are bleeding, they have up to 30 seconds in order to get rid of any blood. That's and get rid of by get rid it has to like get rid of all traces of it so gotta bandage it up you can't just you know wipe off a piece of it and if it's still bleeding you know that's not an acceptable situation and if the blood isn't removed from their clothing or if bleeding doesn't stop within that 30 second time period then the team is forced to use up a timeout sort of similar to like an injury timeout in other professional sports on top of that the player is forced to be subbed out for that point, um, and a new player has to come in in that situation. And in the case where a team doesn't have any timeouts or they don't have any available subs, then that player gets removed out of the gets removed from that point and is not able to um, re-enter the remainder of the point. That is one thing that I am curious about, though, is whether or not we should say if a player you know, let's say that you are in this situation where you don't have a timeout, player player A gets removed, but while that time period is while that time period is happening, they patch up, you know, said spot, you know, then their team makes a catch, you know, wouldn't they be allowed to go back in in that instance as long as they were removed from the match for a period of time? You know what I'm saying? That's one thing that I'm curious to to discuss. Um and that's that's a weird case that I don't know what to, to think of. I, as an official, if I was put in that situation, I would want to be able to call an official's timeout and take as mm -hmm. many as much time as possible to let that last player finish up the play. I mean, obviously, if he has a gouge and he can't continue to play, no matter how hard he tapes that up, I'm probably just going to call him out. Yeah. He can't continue. He can't return to the court, um, and that's a tough call to make. Like, I don't want that to happen, but like, I think it would. As an official, I would want to be able to call an official's timeout and say, "Okay, let's get the situation rectified. Let's tape up his finger. Let's clean up the blood on the floor." That's the reason why we have blood rules in in many organizations because there's a lot of bloodborne diseases now, and we just you know. We don't want to infect anybody unnecessarily just by playing a game that's supposedly no contact. So, <laughs> supposedly no contact, but you're beaming people with balls. Yeah. So, kind of proxy contact. Which no hand-to-hand -hand contact, in theory. Yeah. Again, that's in theory, too. Yeah. Um, so, and you know, 
incidental contact is fine. I don't want to get into it. I mean, if you if you contact somebody on opening a rush, I'm not calling you out because you touched them. I'm yeah, I, I'm giving you a card because you sidelined them or you know sheltered them. Just because yeah. you touched them, I'm not going to call you out. Discussion for another day. Discussion for another day. So, um, yeah, it's, and that's something that the rule book committee will probably have to address. Um, if this rule passes, and no matter what, this blood rule needs to be reformed in general because it's an old rule that predates my work on the on the rule book itself, um, and it was kind of really. It, do, it didn't really apply to some of the stuff that we need to do. Like a lot of people, I think, you know, we probably took that rule from another rule book organization and it doesn't really apply to when people are tearing apart their fingernails and, you know, getting little blood on the, on the balls from their fingers. They just, you know, they wrap up and then they don't get, they don't get blood anymore. They stop bleeding because it's just like a small blood, but it's on your hand, so it's attached to every ball that you touch, which is dangerous. But still, if you wrap it up, it's usually okay. That's from our experience. And right now, the the rule as it as it is is just take them out until they figure it out, and and then they get put in the next point because blood's way too dangerous. And we, you know, we could have, you know, this is a good stopgap. Is if they can't finish it in that small little time, then pull them out, get them as a man mandatory substitution. So I think it's a good stopgap. Yeah. I think the the other point of um, the rule proposal that I think is kind of an interesting thought process here as well is because blood-related incidents right now fall under an official's timeout instead of the potential of a team timeout, um, if it's ruled as an official's timeout, then both shot clocks automatically reset to, you know, their full count. Whereas team under a team timeout, the team that calls the timeout, they're stuck with whatever their shot clock is. The other opposing team gets a rounded up or down to five, depending on how you count. So in that instance, I think it's a very, I think that idea is like very similar to like the injury timeout that they created in the NFL, where if a player gets hurt with under two minutes remaining, a team is forced to use a timeout and the player has to be, you know, off for at least one play in, you know, the sport of in professional football. You know, obviously like people aren't, we're not really in a sport where people want to dive to like conserve time because it, you know, it's not really like a thing. And yeah. For the most part, like, or at least I have yet to see a team that, you know, tries to utilize something like that because um, there's not really many instances where you have to catch your breath or you have to, like, you know, because the goal is just to run across the court and hit people out as, as quickly as you can. But I definitely so, think that the shot clock timeout um, that's attached to this rule is good for business because we don't want people diving and – you know, I you, I like to think about it as like, yeah, it's it's five seconds, but still, I want to be fair. I want to be fair to everybody. And what's the fairest thing to the player that's bloodied? What's the fairest team to the team that, you know, that has the bloody player on it? And then the opposite team, too. So what's the fairest? The fairest is to treat it like we do a team timeout, but in, you know, a sort of different way. So it'll be a new name, the blood timeout. Yeah. I 
yeah, rugby has this. It's it's you know blood rule. You got to play stops in some situations and things are applied and then play continues without blood. That's the point of it. You don't want to have blood on the court. And my thing with, you know, I think 30, like, I like the idea of, you know, I like the point of 30 seconds in the sense that we're trying to construct time and we're trying to be cognizant of like gym space and that sort of deal. So Brandon said 60 seconds was good with him. So I think that's much better because my thing is we don't want in the in the case of the thirty second thing is we don't want players to like do a There's... shabby job of like cleaning up or like you know patching themselves up and then only for them to go out and start bleeding again, and that's and it's it's a a, a judgment call by the head official that's going to see you tape up and say that's not going to hold, dude. You need to you're you're bleeding from four fingers. You need to take yourself out. Yeah. yeah I, I, Kind of a judgment call, allowing the head head referee has to allow the player in to back into play. The officiating crew has to keep tra- tabs of it too. That's just rule enforcement. That's all. Mm-hmm. But an interesting proposal. I see a lot of, I see a very split decision on this one in the sense that there's you know there's uh, there's a competitive nature to this rule, and then there's also morality to it as well. That's like, you know. You can you can say one way or another on either side and not be wrong. Like this is a very gray area, I would say. So in any case, it is it is getting touched up, no matter how we do it. So I think kind of the end yeah. result to be is it going to be a specific timeout created for this instance, and then you know fairness attached to it, or just keep it as is and then rewrite it a little bit. Hmm. Because it's 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 just messy right now. I I would admit it, and it's time for revision. Yeah. Um, right. I don't have any final thoughts to be honest. So. Yeah, I think we're good. I think we're good. I think this has been a good discussion. Not too long. Okay. Um. Um. All right, from uh, Average Shows Podcast, I'm Zygmunt Saloni. And I'm Hunter Ford. And this has been Average Joe's Podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for listening to Average Joe's Podcast. Be sure to check out more episodes of Average Joe's on iTunes or our website, ncdadodgeball.com. Until next time, just remember the five D's of dodgeball. Dodge, duck, dip, dive, and die. Bye-bye.